Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain and then sign our signature with neurological bacteria. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition we'll feature spindle cells, bacterial artists, and online dating science. But first up, here's the news with Patrick Ruby. <laughs> Computers detect domestic abuse in an article by New Scientist. Computer records might be used in future to identify victims of domestic abuse that doctors are unable to diagnose. Ben Rice from Harvard Medical School and the Children's Hospital Boston and his colleagues have been testing this theory. They examined computer medical records for 561,000 people over a six-year period across one entire state in the US. 19,000 of these people were known to have been abused, and the others were not. They used a special program to analyse the records and predict risk factors for abuse. It detected the patterns of problems that doctors already look for, including certain physical injuries and mental illness, but it also discovered newer associations. For example, alcoholism is more common in abused women, and depression is more common in abused men, when compared to non-abused individuals of the same sex. The program examined another set of medical histories and based on its algorithm was able to diagnose abuse faster than doctors. The program reports a number of false positive results, which means that it predicts abuse in some people which doctors later find is a wrong prediction, and this is the price for finding the true abuse cases faster. Domestic abuse occurs in about 16% of US couples every year, and many victims are unwilling or unable to report the abuse. The researchers believe this program might help detect abuse earlier and help prevent serious episodes of abuse. The results have been published in the British Medical Journal. Bacterial art, reported in ABC Science. Researchers have engineered bacteria to trace images in their agar plates. Dr. Jeff Tabor from the University of California, San Francisco and team have conducted this study. Originally, they injected genes that respond to light in E. coli bacteria. When exposed to the light, the bacteria become translucent, but if they're not exposed to light, they turn black. Back in 2005, they were able to use this technique to make a ghost picture of a squid in agar plates, with each bacterium re representing one pixel of the squid. To trace an image, new bacteria were engineered to respond to chemical cues from their surrounding bacterial mates. Bacteria are made translucent by a light released. Bacteria are made translucent as a light releases a chemical and turns a neighboring bacteria black. This creates a thin line of drawing on the agar plate. One possible application of this research is to make biological computers. 
If a bacterium is signalling constantly, and its signals are continually altering, depending on how its neighbours are signalling, it's an example of parallel processing. Parallel processing is used in computers and is able to perform millions of calculations simultaneously. However, the bacteria are a little bit slower than this. It took them 12 hours to trace the outlines. More realistically, these bacteria could be used in industries such as mining to alert people to the quantities of certain chemicals within the mine. Currently, the bacteria can produce red, green and blue pigments, but they could potentially make every colour of the rainbow. Next up, we have Nija Dalal telling us how the brain thinks with spindle cells. It's a tough question. What makes people able to do the things we do? What makes us able to build cities, roads, contemplate the universe, do calculus or produce radio shows? We used to think it was these special cells called spindle cells. They are shaped, these cells, like a big spindle around which Red is spun. They're highly specialized, more recently evolved neurons that in MRI imaging tests, they are, have been shown to light up in response to things like a picture of a loved one or uh, scenes of other people suffering. So feelings of compassion and empathy, uh, feelings of embarrassment or self-consciousness that these cells are really stimulated at such times. So they've been connected to all those phenomena of, of our self-awareness and our moral sense of right and wrong and our sense of empathy and compassion. That's Charles Siebert, and he wrote Roger's World, a book about the fraught relationship between humans and animals, and specifically about chimpanzees. The thing is, spindle cells were long thought to be the cells that made us human. We have to keep drawing the boundary to separate ourselves from the rest and, and to secure our position. And, you know, so we thought, you know, we're the only ones that have these. But actually, it turns out chimps have spindle cells, too, and so do whales and countless other animals. And what this means is that these animals kind of have real minds. The point about Roger, the, the sort of protagonist of my book, and elephants that I talk about and whales and uh, so many different species is we're learning that they have a degree of sophistication mentally, neuronally. Uh, um, this is no longer just conjecture. This is science. And we're seeing that in stressful situations, in captivity, for example, chimpanzees and a slew of other kinds of animals, elephants and others, suffered from trauma and stress and uh, nervous disorders and insomnia. And uh, as I say in the book, they have minds enough to lose. This sophistication, these spindle cells, they're fascinating. The neuroscientist who first told me about spindle cells, Dr. Patrick Hoff, who's at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine here in Manhattan, he thinks that spindle cells are intimately related to the evolution of language. Our language in our species and, and in other, uh, whatever the language of other species are. So there's quite, a lot, <laughs> there's quite a lot that spindle cells have been associated with. So they've been associated with language, which most people would say is good, but they've also been associated with suffering. 
they're not the only class of specialized neurons, but they are the kind of neuron that has been shown to suffer a wounding, physical wounding and stunting, like the bent florets of a flower in instances of trauma or insufficient sort of development when a child does not have enough attachment to the mother. And so now we're finding that in human beings, you know, young human beings who suffer from poor rearing, you know, poor parenting or, or suffered some emotional trauma, and in adults, like soldiers from war and stuff, that there's an actual wounding to these neurons in like our brain. Like they, they don't get shaped the same or they change their shape? Or they or? could... For an adult, they would actually change their shape. And we've seen the same thing now in the brains of chimpanzees who have suffered trauma, adult chimpanzees. So now here we're seeing the objective correlative behind all of the, quote, psychological, airy, vague kind of ailments that we've talked. I mean, look at how long it took us to even acknowledge that there's such a thing as post-traumatic stress. You know, the shock of war, the shell shock. And, you know, there was such a stigma about that for so long. Now we're finding out that there is actual physical objective evidence of this kind of wounding. And to find that it's there in humans, but then to find out across species that it occurs, it's pretty amazing. Chimps have their full allotment of spindle cells from birth, but ours don't show up until four months after birth, which might speak to how quickly chimps become independent. But the question, what does make us human? Well, Charles Siebert isn't sure there's really anything that separates us from animals, but there is some bad news. It's like the ultimate trade-off, right? Patrick Hoff, the reason why he had that cooler full of animal brains... Wait, stop. This is... This is a really good story. He talks about it in the book, and I had to congratulate him. Hats off to you for going into the room with the cooler full of brains. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, that cooler full of brains just keeps coming up now. Uh, it seems eerie. I, it's so eerie. I, I, well, it's just, it's just one of those great, great moments where it never goes away. I, I have to tell you, I tap into it all the time. And the, the way he did it, he just sort of popped it on me. We, I thought I was being escorted to the elevator outside his office at Mount Sinai, and he opens his door and is like, step in here. And all of a sudden I'm like, what the hell? And, yeah, surrounded by all these brains and glass, you know, it's just, uh, it's just one of those really amazing moments. So it's really great. It's amazing that his life is just like that. I know, I know. You just imagine each day you just you spend prying into the brains of other beasts. Dr. Hoff does these comparative anatomies of different animal brains. Trying to get to the source of what causes things like Alzheimer's and dementia and late-onset dementia. And one of the things he was alarmed to discover was that chimps don't suffer from this. And the question was, why? And one of his deductions was that they just don't have the sheer abundance of these highly specialized, more recently evolved neurons that we do, the very neurons that um, allow for our more expansive cognitive reach, the ability to regard our own brain's functions, to talk about them the way you and I are talking, to write symphonies, to, I don't know, regard a night sky and, and the vastness of time. To build cities, roads, do calculus, produce radio shows. That same elaborate fabric of neurons that allows for that is also given to easier fraying as we get older. So, in a way, the source of our greatest collective ambitions is the source of our most devastating individual downfall. And knowing that, the fact that we can know that, is probably one of the saddest parts of being human. 
Thank you, Nija Dalal. You can hear more of Nija on Final Draft. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now, the science of online dating. Yes, the OkCupid website, offering their free online dating, they've looked at 500,000 first contacts. That's the first email that you send and receive when you see someone you like on the website or someone on the website sees you. They managed to do a statistical analysis by stripping away all the identifying characteristics, the IP numbers, the names, things like that. So it's all just numbers, no embarrassment necessary. And they've discovered that there are things you can do, seven things that they recommend you do to increase the chances of getting a good response to that first contact you try to make. Seven special techniques to improve your chances. Exactly. So, number one that gets the best response, be literate. Don't use NetSpeak, use proper English. That kind of makes sense. It's always good to be able to talk to a potential partner. And to know that they (laughs) can actually write. Yes. Yes. So they get a bit tired of, uh, of all the shortened stuff that we send on our mobile phones, like, are you... Yeah. Okay. As in exactly. letter R, letter U, okay. And leaving out the apostrophes and things like that, it turns people off. And then putting in numbers instead, like two instead of two T-O. Exactly. Exactly. So all of those, if you use anything like that, it's a negative response. That must be where I'm going wrong. Something to improve for next time. <laughs> so the second point was mm-hmm. avoid physical compliments. Avoid physical compliments. So what type of physical compliments must one avoid so well think it through you haven't met this person yet Mm -hmm. so all you're going on is a photo if you're lucky and their profile Mm -hmm. if you're starting in with the physical compliments you're not very genuine i suppose not so you wouldn't be able to say something like you have nice hair or you have pretty eyes straight away that's a big no-no is it exactly because it sounds like a pickup line if you've just met someone it does sound quite like a pick-up line, doesn't it? I suppose you have to wait for the second date before you're allowed to compliment. Well, at least until you've met them. <laughs> this is before the first date. Before the first date, yeah. This it is, is a bit, first contact by text. It is a bit stalkerish, isn't it, if, it, if it's like that? <laughs> They're saying that if you use the word pretty, for example, mm-hmm. you know, if it's a physical compliment, it does badly. Yeah. But if you use it as an adverb, as in, I'm pretty good at sports, it's just another word... And it actually does okay, which okay. they talk about later. But if you say you're pretty, or you're very pretty, or you're beautiful, or you're gorgeous, or sexy, mm-hmm. very negative responses to your first message because you're going over the top. Mm. Yes, I can imagine that. All right. I'm scribbling this all down furiously as you tell me, Ian. <laughs> What's so, number three? 
use an unusual greeting. An unusual greeting. Now, I、yes. think that could possibly go both ways. <laughs> When you say unusual, can you be more specific at all? Yes. Well, they say, look, this is someone's first impression of your first impression.、Mm-hmm. So, if you use slang, well, basically, what are they saying here? They're saying the three most popular ways to say hello are all bad beginnings.、Mm-hmm. Saying hola and yo and all these sort of things didn't go so well. So it's smarter to use no traditional salutation at all. Even don't even say hi or hello,、mm-hmm. and you get a reply rate of twenty seven percent. And just dive into actually what you want to say rather than start with hi. So not even a hello.、Hmm. Well, exactly. Or else, you know, go how's it going? What's up? And howdy did all pretty well because、mm-hmm. they were casual and relaxed. Although you had me at WhatsApp doesn't quite have the same ring. No, it does sound a bit contrived, doesn't it? You have it, me at WhatsApp.、Yeah. <laughs> It's all a bit pickupy, and that turns people off. Yes. Well, all right. That kind of groups in with the second point. Okay.、Mm. What else have you got for me, Ian? Well, this is an important one. Don't try to take it outside. Don't try to don't try to take it outside. Well, look. While it's all fun and games,、um, doing on-site messaging within. The dating site, but of course, eventually, if you want a real relationship, you've got to go into real life. Yeah, IRL. <laughs> but if you immediately offer to chat or an email address or a phone number、mm. in your first message to them, that turns people right off.、Ah. Because one of the things people like is anonymity when you're first on online dating. You don't really know who they are. You just know their profile, and if they don't like you, they don't want to be afraid that you're going to stalk them. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, so you, you don't want to scare them away, and if you ask for or give away your phone number or cell number, as they say on the OKCupid、OK、site, that gives you a negative ten percent. Negative ten percent for the phone number. Yeah. So don't、yeah. be too keen with that first message. Play it cool and play it cool and play it cool. Keep it virtual. <laughs> don't, don't try and cross the line into reality. What、well, reality is okay as long as you just talk about reality and don't push too hard. Okay. So all right, number five. Number five.、What、bring up specific interests. Specific interests.、So. And when I say specific, I mean specific. These people are interested in you for being you, and they're as odd and interesting as you are. So. So long walks on the beach is that? No, that doesn't、enough? cut it. That, that doesn't, doesn't cut, cut it. it. I'm talking about things like zombie. Now, things you might think would turn off a potential partner actually seem to turn them on. So, like the top words, yes.、Right? Um, we'll, we'll get, the actual top word we'll get to later because that has its own special section because it was so popular. But zombie. I mean, would you think you think that's a pretty nerdy geek guy sort of thing? Turns out, no. No, if you're interested in zombies and they're interested in zombies, then they're really interested. Yes, I suppose so. I mean, it cuts to the chase. <laughs> it doesn't leave too much to the imagination. You just, I like zombies. You like zombies. Well, I guess we're meant for each other. Yeah. Although、well. you can't say that in your first because that <laughs> oh, no, going no, no. too serious. You not can't cool. do that. Not cool. Not cool enough. And you can't say they're pretty as well. No. Say, I like zombies and you're pretty. That's a big no-no. <laughs> but you can talk about bands. The word band. band.、Okay. Yeah. I mean, ideally, if you're in a band, but just band at all.、Mm-hmm. Tattoos. Okay. Literature. 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 Makes it up there. Studying. Hmm. Because it's a real sort of thing, I suspect, and there's a lot of students out there looking for love. So, do they say I am studying or I like studying? Just merely using the word、ah, is in there. This、so、is all keywords. This is all statistical analysis.、Ah. Vegetarian. 
Okay. Yes. Metal. Metal. Yes. As in any specific metal? Well, I'm thinking as in music. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it could be copper, but I'm thinking <laughs> heavy. A bit too sciencey geeky just then. <laughs> but yes. So Continue. that's all something that's important to you and the person you're talking to, ideally both of you. Mm. So it's one of those you know, time-honored ways of getting to know someone is that you've got things in common. Yes, that so makes sense. So there you go. Every niche word you use seems to have significant, they've got significant data that it has a positive effect on the messages. Mm. So don't be afraid of your little hobbies not being so popular. Just take the plunge because there are people out there like you who like zombies. <laughs> and, and number six. six. Well, mm. if you're a guy, be self-effacing. Self-effacing. Yeah. Now, this is an odd one because really the normal dating world tells you be more confident. Confident men are attractive, but not online. Mm. So it turns out the words, the keywords they want you to use, well, they, that, that have got done well, is awkward, sorry, apologize, kinder, and probably all made the messages more successful. This is sounding fantastic for me because that basically describes how I interact. <laughs> Awkward, kind of. I'm sorry. Oh, this is great. So you don't want to go out there and oversell yourself. No, they're saying a little hemming and whoring online. That doesn't sound well at all. Hemming and whoring. Ooh, hemming and whoring. Hoing. Oh, okay. uh, it works so much better in an American accent, I suspect, <laughs> than an Australian one. <laughs> I wonder if there's an Australian equivalent to that. To hemming and whoring and erring and umming? Erring and umming. Do you think? Yes. Erring and umming, I suppose. Online? Um, look, they've got... If you look up the OkCupid okay blog, they have wonderful bar charts of all of this. Oh, really? And we can't show you this, obviously, on radio, but uh, I'll just quickly show this to Patrick so we can see the male self-effacement mm. bar chart. Of I'm sorry. all for a bar chart. <laughs> show me these bar charts. Wow. So the most popular word in male self-effacement is sorry, and then apologize, and then awkward, and then pretty... Mm, not so popular down the bottom, probably, and then kinder. So, okay. So being not too full of yourself and not being afraid of the of saying the A word, awkward. Well, they're saying the average reply rate of man-to-woman messages is 27%. 27%? Yeah, so that means 73% don't reply when you send them out a message. Hmm. Um, if you're, so women like guys who write mumbly, they suggest here, um, don't let the appearance of vulnerability become the appearance of sweaty desperation, please. <laughs> <laughs> sweaty desperation. Well, I suppose it's a fine line to tread really, isn't it? Please is on the negative 22% reply rate. Yes. And it's the only word that's actually... <laughs> It's the only word that's actually worse for you than its NetSpeak equivalent of PLS. Okay. Mm. But you can't use NetSpeak because rule number one was use proper grammar. That's right. Proper We've words. come up to the last rule. All right. What is rule number seven? Rule number seven. Now, this will be a little bit controversial. Consider becoming an atheist. Becoming an atheist. This was the number one keyword that got the most responses. Really? So now, you just say, yeah, I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't really believe in God or anything like that. And then you you get a massive response to you. Everyone loves it. 
Well, they're saying mentioning your religion helps you, but it helps you most if you have no religion. So the numbers say, they've got the religious terms here, and basically, um, statistically statistical significant number of times that atheists showed up was surprisingly often. 342 times per 10,000 messages, Mm -hmm. second only to 552 mentions of Christian, ahead of 278 for Jewish and 142 for Muslim. And again with the bar graph, um, you'll see the only negative word was God. So don't mention God. Don't mention God. You can mention your religion, you'll get a little bit of a response, but the highest by far was atheist. Um, They say, though very few people actually do it, Invoking the sky-breaking thunderbolts of Zeus does help a person get noticed. Reply rate, 56%. 56%. Versus the average For Zeus. of 27. Mm. So, so just slip Zeus, slip into, Zeus a, in into a casual conversation <laughs> and see how you go. But atheists came out on top. Mm. Well, they're saying, look, maybe that's not so unusual when the site is called OK Cupid, which is also from a classic pantheon. But so, so, so if you can't bring yourself to deny the deity, consider opening yourself up to a whole wacky bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> so if we look at the seven steps in their entirety, you find mm. that for online dating, the best achievers are well-educated, grammatically correct, self-effacing atheists. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ian. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or if you'd like to date somebody on Diffusion, if you'd like to broadcast a story and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on the website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Patrick Ruby, Nija Dalal, and myself, Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Patrick Ruby in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.